All right. How's everyone doing? All right. Hey, I'm going to jump right in because I'm going to be, I know, pressed for time and don't want to make Mark nervous. So I'm going to get going right away. And so here's a picture I want to show you. This is, uh, this guy's name is Steve Gleason. Some of you may actually know who he is. If you don't, that's okay. But you know, you, when you see a picture like this, uh, you know, you can find yourself looking at it and going, you know, I wonder what's going on. I mean, you know, what happened? Who is this? Uh, you know, who are these people? And, and uh, there's a, a little video clip that I want to show you that tells you a little bit about Steve Gleason's story. So watch this. I think it's such an amazing thing that both of you said to me yesterday, even if it rains, we have each other, our family and friends are going to be here. And isn't that really, as all us married people know, it's how we act, not when things are great, but how do we act when things are difficult? When I first got to know him, he had long hair and played for the NFL. I thought it was going to be a complete cheese ball. Steve Gleason was responsible for one of the most dramatic moments in New Orleans Saints history. Steve blocking the punt was like the rebirth of something really big. He was just like the superhero athlete, but also super smart. He was just the greatest thing I've ever met. I've been having some strange medical issues going on recently. I have been diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. This disease is almost always fatal. My first reaction was, he's telling me this, but I don't necessarily believe what he's saying. God, if you have some control over this, then save me. I don't want Michelle to be here by herself. Just because I'd have to help take care of him, it wasn't a big enough reason not to have all the beautiful things that baby bring to a family. I am making a video blog for you, my child. Hello. Hello. <laughs> hey, how are you? Oh, how are you now? My intention is to pass on as much of who I am as I possibly can to you. We're doing really the coolest thing we can do together, right? That's right. That's my boy, Rivers. That's my boy. <laughs> I'm gonna be around, buddy, until you are able to stand on your own. It's not gonna be easy, but it's gonna be awesome. I believe my future is bigger than my past. It's easier to make a difference with the world versus the reality of hardness it is to maintain relationships. His main purpose now is being the best dad that he can be. That's all that matters, is me passing myself to you. Family, friends, dating, obstacles, insecurities, religion, love. That's what dads do. They pass the best of themselves to their kids. You know, I share that not to promote a movie because, I mean, that's not even about the movie. I, the point of that, uh, besides fulfilling my desire to show you some football each week, um, the point of that is that everybody has a story, right? You look at a picture like that, you see somebody like that, and you wonder, I wonder what's going on. Everybody has a story. How many of you like to go shopping? Okay, I see a few hands. You know, I mean, like Kelly likes to go to the mall. Some of my kids like to go to the mall. I hate going to the mall. All right, but the one redeeming uh, thing about it is it's kind of fun sometimes to sit and just watch people, right? I mean, it's fascinating just to see all shapes, all sizes, you know, just all the stuff, the dynamics that go on. In fact, Kelly and I were just talking about this last week. We were on vacation and, 
And um, <clears throat> we were looking out over literally thousands of people that we did not know. And, you know, we had this exact conversation of going, you know, every one of those people have a story. And realistically, this side of heaven, we're not going to know any of those stories. But everybody has a story, right? And so, you know, as we jump into our conversation today, I want to start by reminding us that, you know, this book is about God's big story, right? This book is about God's big story. And, you know, we're going to talk about Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. But what's important is that to remember is that that story uh, fits within part of a bigger story, it fits within God's story, right? And, that, and God's story always points to Jesus. If you're like us, then you might be reading through the chronological Bible. And if you are, then this week you were reading in the book of Joshua. And, you know, Joshua crosses over the Jordan River with the nation of Israel and they defeat, they win the battle of Jericho, right? The walls came a-tumbling down. And if you read that story, I mean, it's like, wow, there's a lot of killing going on. In fact, if you read just Joshua 6, I mean, it's like, oh my goodness. I mean, they just kill everybody. I mean, it doesn't even make any sense unless you put it in the greater context of God's story. God's big story. Next week is Easter, and Easter is one of those standalone weekends that people love to come to church because it's about a story of a risen Savior, and it's awesome. But before you can have an Easter, you have to have a Jesus and his story, right? In other words, I mean, it's not like one day God just said, hey, you know, why don't you go to the cross and die a substitutionary death for the rest of humanity and save the world, right? It didn't happen that way. Jesus is part of God's big story. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is there right from the beginning. In the beginning was God and Jesus was there. And then John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So this God of the universe puts skin on and he comes and he dwells among us. We can't miss that part of the story because without it, Easter is just another day where some guy revolted against the, the system and got put to death. Whoopee. With it, we have what we call the incarnation. Colossians 1.15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God in a bod. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. You want to know God? Look at Jesus. You want to learn about God? You want to understand God? You want to experience God? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God would react in your marriage? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God would react in your, with your kids, with your boss? You want to know how God would react in our current political environment? You want to know how God would act here this weekend? Look at Jesus. When you see God, when you see Jesus, you see God. Few months back, we celebrated the Christmas story. Again, another one of those standalone weekends. People love to come because we love the Christmas story. We love to hear about 
the baby Jesus. The problem is it's easy to fast forward from Christmas to Easter and miss the 33 years in between. When Jesus lived life the way God would have lived life because Jesus is God. And so this story that we talk about on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, we're going to talk about that story today. But remember, it's part of a bigger story. I want to set the stage a little bit so we understand what we're, what we're looking at. Uh, this is a map of the Roman Empire when Jesus was around. And what you need to know about the Roman Empire is literally they owned the world. I mean, they, they controlled the civilized world. Other than parts of the Far East, uh, the Romans controlled everything. In fact, one man, Caesar, ruled the entire world. Wrap your head around that for a minute. One guy ruled the civilized world. And so as they would conquer uh, world uh, uh, countries and, and grow this empire, they would tax them and then they would rule over them. And it's really, it's kind of a marvel of history that they were able to do it for so long. And I mean, it, people study that. I mean, how were they able to do this? And there's lots of reasons, and I'm certainly not, uh, you know, historian, but I want to share four of the ways that Rome was able to rule so well or so efficiently or effectively with you today, because these four um, help set the stage for us talking about Jesus' triumphal entry. So the first one is that they, they had these great building campaigns. Uh, they built these great structures that benefited some of those that were being uh, ruled, that were being overtaken. <clears throat> so some of the amphitheaters and roads they would build were benefiting even those that they were uh, in control of. Another, another way that they ruled was through what was called Pax Romana. In other words, Roman peace. Now it was a perceived peace. It wasn't necessarily a real peace because you were under the control of this empire. But in some ways, it could feel like that was better than the, uh, than the options. And, and we see that some today. And when you see some of these evil regimes that are in charge or in control of a country, and then they get toppled. And what happens is when they get toppled, you discover that not only were they in control of the country, but they were also in control of some of the criminal elements in that country. And so when you take away that, that uh, control, what happens is sometimes the criminal element arises. And so for the average citizen, sometimes they don't feel nearly as safe as they did when this oppressive government was in charge. And so Rome in some ways benefited from that kind of perceived peace. Like, well, it's not great, but it's better than what could happen. Another way that they were able to rule was through by partnering with local elites Kings and governors and tetrarchs, they would partner with them and control through them as representatives of Rome. Think King Herod, king of Judea. And then the fourth way uh, is through what we call emperor cult. Uh, in other words, they would present Caesar as a deity in their polytheistic religion of the day. They would present Caesar as being literally God, a God, Right? And now some, some look back and they say, well, they didn't really think he was God. It's just, you know, they just said that. But honestly, history says otherwise. People actually believe that, some people actually believe that Caesar was a God. And it's a whole lot easier to maintain rule if people think you are a God, right? <clears throat> well, this one region that uh, is part of the Roman Empire is what we know as the Middle East. And this region is one of the most unstable 
regions of the entire Roman Empire. I mean, it's a political hotbed and it's extremely frustrating for the Romans because of this pesky little group of Jews that refuse to bow down and worship Caesar or any of the other polytheistic gods of the Roman Empire. In fact, they created what was called the Jewish exception. In other words, in all of, in all of the Roman Empire, you have to worship Caesar except the Jews because they refuse to do it. That's a great way to make friends, right? Have an exception like that. I have a, I have a daughter-in-law who is Jewish and I, you know, I know she just kind of shakes her head when she thinks of me sometimes, but you know, I tell her I, I'm so grateful for the Jews. And in the context, most of the time I'm talking about, you know, the, the fact that the, the word of God today we have, we have to thank the way that he used the Jewish people to bring that word through history to us, right? The way that it was preserved with such care to make sure that what we are reading today is the word of God. I'm so grateful and I tell her that. But this is another one of those places that I say I'm so grateful for the Jewish people who refuse to bow down and worship Caesar. Because honestly, if I were there, in that day, and they said, look, your life or worship Caesar, I'm not sure I would have been strong enough to say, no, you need to make an exception for me. So I'm grateful for the Jewish people that were willing to say, no, we're not having it. I'm not bowing down and worshiping Caesar. So this region that we know of as the Middle East, this region that includes the nation of Israel was controlled at this time by a king, Herod the Great. And that term Herod the Great is not a misnomer. I mean, history records this guy as an amazing, great man. He did some, I mean, by the world standards, he was a great leader. I mean, he led really well, not by God's standards, but by the world standards. He led this political hotbed really well. And he did some amazing things that history records. And he built a, a ton of things, but among them were things like Caesarea, which was a city he built in honor of Caesar. And I mean, it's this massive coastal fortress that he built. He built the great palace Herodium in the Judean desert. He built the fortress of Annonia, which you can still see beneath the Via Dolorosa. And then what the Jews loved is he also rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Of course, in the Bible, we meet Herod in Matthew 2, you might remember that story. The Magi from the east see the star, the son of, or the, excuse me, the king of the Jews is to be born. And so they come to worship the king of the Jews. And Herod tells him, great, go find the king of the Jews and come tell me so I too can go worship him. And then in Matthew 2, verse 12, we read, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. So God lets them know he's not gonna come worship this king. So do not go. They defy Herod, which of course Herod, we, we read, decides that he doesn't want the king of the Jews to be born. And so he has all the babies, two years and under, killed. Of course, Jesus gives his kingdom over to his three sons, Philip, Antipas, and Archelaus. And Archelaus is the one that's uh, given control of this political hotbed. And he doesn't do very well. In fact, he does poorly and he's removed almost immediately, which gives the Romans the opportunity to put their man in there. Somebody that's going to rule this place with an iron fist. Somebody that's going to put these pesky little Jews in their place and make sure they don't get out of control. And that man's name is 
Pontius Pilate. And so during this time when Jesus enters Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate is the governor and Jesus is there like all the other Jews for the celebration of Passover. So what's the significance of Passover? Why is that so important to our story? Well, if you don't know, the story, the celebration of Passover dates back to uh, part of uh, the history of the nation of Israel. They were slaves in Egypt. The Pharaoh had long forgotten who Joseph was. And Egypt, Egypt or, uh, Israel is now, uh, the nation of Israel are slaves to Egypt, to Pharaoh. And so God sends Moses and his brother Aaron to free his people from Pharaoh. And so Moses and Aaron show up and they say to Pharaoh, let my people go. To which Pharaoh says, no. And they begin to send plague after plague. And instead of turning Pharaoh and saying, getting Pharaoh to say yes, it hardens Pharaoh's heart until finally the 10th plague is delivered. The 10th plague that God would send the angel of death through all of Egypt, kill the firstborn son of every person and animal, including Pharaoh's. Meanwhile, what God tells the Jewish people, what God tells the nation of Israel is this. We see this in Exodus 12. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So God gives the nation of Israel this very specific, these very specific directions to do uh, as he's about to deliver this plague. And then in verse 12, we read, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So each year... From then on to today, still, all of Israel celebrates the Passover to remember how the blood of the Lamb rescued them from death. A foretaste of the day when the real Lamb would come and die once for all and save not only Israel, but the rest of the world. At the time of this Passover, the population in Israel is somewhere, or excuse me, in Jerusalem is somewhere around 30,000 people. They say during Passover, that number would swell to as much as 250,000. So you have to imagine this pressure-packed political hotbed now adds another couple hundred thousand people. I mean, it's, it's a powder keg just waiting to go off. Imagine the added pressure from all these people and add to that the celebration, the Passover celebration includes four glasses of wine. Ha! There's trouble. So you already have this unstable region. So a great leader like Pontius Pilate is going to make sure that he takes care of that. And so he would travel from Caesarea down the Joppa Road and he would enter Jerusalem through the West Gate. 
We don't know exactly what that'd be like. I mean, I close my eyes and kind of picture what that might be like. And then I found this clip. This is from the movie uh, Ben-Hur. Sorry, some of you my age, it's not the old movie. It's the new one. Uh, but this is, this is one person's depiction of the Roman soldiers entering the city of Jerusalem. So again, I don't know exactly what it would look like, but clearly uh, when Pilate would come into uh, the city, maybe riding on a war horse, his message is clear, right? Do not even think about messing around this week. Do not even think about having some sort of an uprising. If you get out of line, guess what? We're going to crush you. And meanwhile, on the other side of Jerusalem, we have Jesus. Matthew 20 records Jesus traveling towards Jerusalem and along the way he tells his disciples about his upcoming death and resurrection. In chapter 20, he addresses the mother of James and John who wants the sons of Zebedee to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus. And along the way, he heals two blind men. And then in verse 20 or chapter 21 of Matthew, we read, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so that prophet that they're referring to is Zechariah. Zechariah 9, we read this. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so it sets up this scene of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people line the streets with their palm branches, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And this word Hosanna, it's interesting. It comes from the Greek word Hosanna. That's supposed to be funny. But that, that Greek word Hosanna comes from a Hebrew word that we find in Psalm 118. You might remember Psalm 118 because Pastor Jim preached on Psalm 118, one of the Hallel Psalms where we get the word hallelujah. And Psalm 118 verse 25 says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. That word save us is hoshana in Hebrew. Hoshana. Say that. Hoshana. Help. Save us. Lord, save us. So as they are crying out, Hosanna, it's a shout of praise, but it's also a shout of salvation. Hoshana, save us, son of David. Salvation has come. Praise God for the son of David. 
Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God. Hoshana. See, Israel, think about this. They have all these celebrations. One of them is the celebration of Sukkot. Every year, they celebrate for a week. And the end of Sukkot, they read, they sing Psalm 118. Hoshana. And they're saying, thank you, God, for delivering us from this past year. But they're also saying, Lord, bring us salvation. So think about this as they are saying Hoshana and they're under the oppression of the Babylonians. And they're saying Hoshana, save us under the oppression of the Persians. And they're saying Hoshana under the oppression of the Greeks. And they're saying Hoshana under the oppression of the Romans. Guess what starts to happen? You start to get a little bitter. And so it's easy to see how those cries of Hosanna one day in less than a week turn into cries of crucify him, crucify him. And so what we have is we have this picture of one kingdom riding into Jerusalem from the west and one kingdom riding in Jerusalem, into Jerusalem from the east. From the west, we have a kingdom that rides in on a war horse, loud and proud. On the east, we have a kingdom that rides in on a donkey with humility we're reminded of Micah 6, 8, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Luke 14, 11, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Or Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form. He humbled himself by being coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So two different kingdoms are coming into Jerusalem, maybe at the exact same moment. We don't know. But one kingdom comes in from the west carrying swords and spears. The other comes in from the east armed with prayer. One kingdom comes in saying, we want justice. And if we don't get justice, we're going to take it. Matthew 26, 47, we read, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. One kingdom comes with swords and clubs and spears Jesus gives us a different picture of his kingdom. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to sor be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed. Look, I know the temptation. I get it. To let everyone know what you think about everything, right? I've written that email to somebody, sent it off, felt really good for about 30 seconds and then wish I could get it back. Facebook and Snapchat make it easy to denigrate a celebrity or an athlete or the president. I know because I've done it. And it's easy to justify. I mean, look what these people are doing. Look what they're saying. I mean, these are bad people, right? Maybe. But when was the last time you fell on your face 
and prayed for them. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, that's the kingdom that Jesus speaks of. That's the kingdom that's entering through the east gate. One kingdom is entering saying, Hoshana. The other kingdom is entering saying, Hosanna to God in the highest. Are we demanding the life that we deserve? Or are we praising God for his many blessings? See, it's easy for bitterness to creep in when we find ourselves demanding our own way. What we want, when we want it. Have you been pleading with God for something? We pray every day for my grandson, Justice. Every day. Every day we plead with God that he would heal Justice so that he could speak again. So he could sing again. Every day. My oldest daughter's best friend, Tess, almost every day we pray for her. She's dying of cancer. For years we've been praying for her, every day. Do you have physical things that you're praying for, that you're pleading God for? Maybe relational things, maybe your marriage, maybe your kids, maybe a coworker that you're pleading with God about. Maybe a financial situation. Maybe some of you have been pleading for a job or pleading because of some financial loss. And what can happen if you're not careful and you plead with God over and over again is you can find yourself getting bitter. You can find yourself on Facebook shouting to the world, Hoshana! God save me! Instead of remembering to, pray, to proclaim Hosanna to God in the highest. Luke 19, 41, we read, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from you. If you'd only known what would really bring you peace, if you only knew what would really bring you victory. And don't get me wrong, all right? Revelation reminds us that Jesus is gonna ride in on a war horse one day. And that's going to be an awesome and wonderful day. But here he's teaching us about a different kingdom. A different time. Because one kingdom is riding in one gate saying, serve me. The other kingdom's riding in the other gate saying, let me serve. See, Pilate expected everyone to serve him, meet all of his needs. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what does that look like today? I mean, here's an example. Men, if you're married, some of you are screaming out, Hoshana, when it comes for your merit to your marriage. You're saying, God, come fix this marriage. Which, by the way, translates, come fix my wife. But Ephesians 5 reminds us that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That's why, that's why it drives me crazy when I hear people say that Christianity and the Bible are oppressive to women. I mean, really? Not the Bible I read. The problem, man, is that some of us, 
want to ride into our living rooms on a white horse and demand that we be served. And Jesus is saying, we need to ride in on a donkey and be ready to serve. And listen, I haven't been great at it my whole marriage. And I'm getting better. And I hope by God's grace, I'll get even better. But we have to learn what it looks like to die to ourselves and serve. That's the kingdom that Jesus is riding in on. And I'll end with this. There's a book, Cold Case Christianity, written by J. Warner Wallace. He's a homicide detective, and he, he looks at the Bible uh, through the eyes, through the lens of a homicide detective. Because, you know, there are critics out there that try to discount the Bible as being unreliable because well, a lot of different reasons. But one of them is that it contradicts itself. And so, like, for instance, they, they love to point to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, those first four books of the New Testament that, that are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' birth and life, death, and, and resurrection. <clears throat> And so like, for instance, one of the, the things that critics will point to is, uh, if you remember, there's a story in the Bible of Jesus uh, freeing the demon-possessed man. And the, the demons uh, go into the pigs and, uh, you know, the pigs go over the cliff, right? <clears throat> well, in Mark and Luke, they tell the story about one demon-possessed man, Matthew, who, by the way, is writing to a pre predominantly Jewish uh, audience, Matthew tells of two demon-possessed men. Same story, but there's two demon-possessed men. And so the critics look at that and they say, see, there's a contradiction. Or remember I told that story, I, I mentioned Jesus healing the blind, the two blind men on his way into Jerusalem. Well, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark and Luke record the same story, but he only heals one blind man. So the critics say, see, there you go. But one of the tools that rabbis use, remember Matthew speaking to a very Jewish culture. One of the tools that rabbis like to use is they take a character in a story and they double it. So instead of one demon-possessed man, there's two demon-possessed mans. Why would they do that? The second demon-possessed man is you. It allows you to be entered into that story. Instead of one blind man, there's two because it's you and it's me. And so I read earlier the account in Matthew of them getting the donkey for Jesus to ride. And there's two donkeys, <clears throat> which I don't know how Jesus rides two donkeys, but there's two donkeys. And of course, Mark and Luke only record one donkey. Guess what? That second donkey, it's for you. It's for me. God's inviting us into the story and saying to us, will you get on that other donkey and usher in my kingdom. Will you line up with my kingdom today? So the question today is, which kingdom? Which kingdom are we going to be a part of? Is it going to be that kingdom that rides in on a war horse demanding our way? Or is it the kingdom that rides in on a donkey and says, let me serve? I gave you three quick next steps. The first one is simply, I, I will write out my story. We began this talking about everybody has a story. And hopefully our story fits within God's story. And hopefully your story includes, includes how you became part of Jesus' kingdom. But write out that story. It's great to have, be able to pass on to your kids, to your friends, to your coworkers. 
Second one is that I choose to identify with Jesus's kingdom. I choose to get on that donkey and become part of Jesus's kingdom. And then finally, number three, I will attend, and I left it blank, some prayer events. Pastor Jim already mentioned them. There's one today here in just a few minutes, our concert of prayer, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we have uh, several more. And so just make a commitment to come to one, two, three, or all of them. All right? Be part of Jesus's kingdom that falls on our face and says, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this day that you've given to us. Thank you that you are willing to humble yourself and to come to earth and to live the perfect life and then in obedience, go to the cross and die in our place that we might be forgiven, that we might be made right with you. Thank you. And God, this Palm Sunday, I just pray that you would help each one of us to have the strength, the courage, the resolve <clears throat> to identify with your kingdom. No matter what's going on around us, no matter what the opposition, no matter what the persecution, God, allow us to identify ourselves with you. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we're so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.